Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 10, and happy anniversary today. Many of you have been here from the very beginning, and uh, for those who haven't been here from the very beginning, I must say that I envy you. It, it must be quite a thing to be in one church for that many years and to uh, see God's blessing through the years and through the generations, and it is something that is worthy of celebrating, not celebrating ourselves, but as we have been doing in worship, celebrating the great things He has done, and uh, so we do that today. The Reformation was a, a time when the Reformers sought to bring the church back to its biblical roots. It wasn't starting something new. It was in their view, and we of course see that as a part of our heritage, so we would agree with that. It was taking them back to what the scripture originally said and what the church ought to be. Now, one of the things that came out of the Reformation are those foundational principles that uh, sometimes are called the five solas. Sola meaning onlys, the five onlys. And they are sola scriptura, that what the church does and believes is based upon the scripture alone. It is the foundation of our faith. Sola fide, by faith alone, that's where salvation comes. And right with that, sola gratia, grace alone. It's not by our works, not by the works of any church or individual, but it's only by his grace. And number four is solus Christus or solo Christo, Christ alone, as we sang today. That that is our focus. The focus of every worship service ought to be Christ. We worship a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, the focus is Christ in our teaching and in our worship. And then the fifth one is soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. In fact, today and for the next four anniversaries, <laughs> I'd like to say I've got my preaching planned for the next five years, but it's only, only one day for each of the next five years but we are going to look at those foundational principles, principles that this church was founded upon, has held to, and yet it's good for us constantly to go back and to remember. In our heritage, our history goes back far further than 27 years. And we are rooted in something much bigger than ourselves here. 
Now, I'm going to read to you uh, a portion of 1 Corinthians 10. And just to let you know, the context of this was there was some controversy in, in this particular church. Uh, there were some that were eating meat that was offered to idols, and without going into all of the details of that, Paul is addressing that particular controversy. And I want us to take note at, at what he says in terms of how do we figure out what we're going to do with this controversy. In other words, how do we mold our thinking? Because that's really what we are talking about in the bigger picture today. Now he says this in verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if I partake with thankfulness? Why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we do thank you for this time of worship that we have had and we will continue to have as we focus up on your scripture, your word. Because that is the truth. It is your word. And so we sit at your feet and we ask that you would teach us and move us, open our hearts and our minds and our ears to you, and then give us strength to respond, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1750, Johann Sebastian Bach died. It may be, if you know anything about him, should come as no surprise that he was highly influenced by the reformers that I just talked about. Remember the five solas, the foundational principles, and in particular by Martin Luther. I shared a little bit of this before the play a, a couple of evenings this week. You see, it came out in many ways in his own life, but one of the ways that uh, the influence of Luther and the Reformers came out was that uh, as Bach composed these wonderful pieces of music, he would write at the bottom of that piece of music, S-D-G. It's easy to figure out when that's the title of the sermon, what that is. 
Soli Deo Gloria. You see, he would use all of these gifts and these talents and give these wonderful gifts to the world. And yet he said, I want one thing out of this. I want God to be glorified. Now, how does one get to that point? How do we get to that point in our life where while we may not, and we aren't, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach in terms of being a composer, the Bible says he's gifted all of us in some way. And he has. And he's given us lives to live, even though we're in a fallen world. How do we get to the point of having that permeate so much that our lives are lives of soli deo gloria. I believe it begins with a right view of a big God. Now, that may be a little bit of a turn of a phrase that you wouldn't ordinarily use. Sometimes people talk about having a big view of God. Now, I don't want to get overly picky here, but if you talk about having a big view of God, then the focus is on your view. And the implication is, I can have a big view of God or a little view of God, and that determines who God is. But that's not the case. He is a big God. It's up to us to grasp even a part of that view. Too often in our day, and this has been a problem in every day, but certainly in ours, many tend to shrink God down into our little buddy, maybe our butler or our maid, that we will call on when we have a need, but they're kind of out of the way until we need them. And when we need them, we want them there immediately. And some tend to shrink God down into that. That is not the God of the Bible. And so, who is he? When I came to this church, my first series of sermons was on the attributes of God. I don't expect you to remember that. The reason I remind you of that is the reason I made that my first series. When I was in seminary, I had a professor that said, look, when you go to a new church, don't start out by preaching through the Westminster Confession or on theology or or whatever, or on growing the church or anything like that. Preach on the attributes of God because then everything else that you preach and teach from then on is based upon who God is. And so, when I have been called to new churches, I have begun in that way because it made so much sense. And so, 
for me to presume to make one point out of a whole series that could have gone on and on is impossible. And so here's how I want to summarize that right view of a big God. I want to read to you, just read to you, from God's Word in Isaiah 40. And so I want you to listen. You may follow along if you wish, but at least listen carefully to what this right view of a big God looks like in Isaiah 40, beginning with verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows from his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And of course, the answer in all that is no one taught him any of that. It's all his knowledge. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. And then there is a section that compares him with gods that people make with their hands and how there is no comparison. And then verse 21 of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circles of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like a stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. And then verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Giving God all glory begins with a right view of the big God. But then, we also must have a right view of man and of ourselves. In Psalm 53, verse 2, it says, God looks down from heaven and the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all fallen away. Together they've become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then you go to the New Testament in John 3, 
Verse 19, it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So what we have is you have the, the all throughout the scripture, those are just two samples throughout the scripture. We, we have the plight of man that he has run from God. He hates God. But then, that same scripture in Psalm 8 also talks about how God looks on man. Psalm 8, 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. In other words, he's, he's getting a glimpse of that great God, that big God. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And then it, it, it speaks of, in spite of who man is, that God has taken note of him. And God has a purpose for man. So there you have the, the, the balance between the two of our great need and then his grace reaching out to us to give us a place. So here we have a, a, a glimpse of the big God. We have a glimpse of who we are. And so it, it brings us then to say, and look, there is no reason God should ever take notice of us. The only thing he should do to us is destroy us. He is so great. We have been evil. We have turned from him. And yet, by his grace, he has worked in our lives. And that leads us to a Christ-focused life. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Back to Johann Sebastian Bach. Here's an important perspective. He would sign his works the way I told you, but whether they were sacred, like St. Matthew's Passion, or, or what people would classify as secular, uh, the coffee cantata, he'd put these words, S-D-G. Now, that makes sense for the sacred. I don't think anyone would question, okay, you've, you've written something sacred, and you write at the bottom of that for God's glory alone. But then the question is, why would you put that at the bottom of something that we would think of as purely secular? And the answer is, because Bach, quite rightly, did not tear those two apart, the sacred and the secular. He did not make compartments like so many want to do. So many would say we've got one compartment of our life on Sunday and then there's the rest of our life and then we have another Sunday and then there's the rest of our life. But instead, Bach said no. It is all to be for God's glory alone. 
And of course, the reformers emphasize that. That it's our calling, it's our vocation. Whatever it is, whether you are a, a, a pastor or a shoemaker, both are equally high and holy callings. And should be for God's glory alone. Now, I want to give just some examples of how we, as a church, ought to do this and ought to continue in doing this and why we do some of the things that we do. For instance, in terms of worship, one can have man-centered worship or God-centered worship. We see in our day a great deal of man-centered worship. Not because they aren't real believers, but you find especially in uh, what you might call a niche church, you know, one that is focusing on a specific age grouping. And I don't care whether the age grouping are the 20 to 30s or the 70s and above. If you focus on either one of those, the danger is it can quickly become man-centered because it's all about my style of music, my style of communication, rather than asking the question, what does God want us to do in worship? And so, we will not do that here. Our focus, our desire, is to reflect biblical worship, to reflect it in, in terms of uh, uh, when things are written. If you, if you looked in our uh, uh, worship service today, and I didn't ask Mark to do this, but we have things written in the last 10 years, things written in the last century, and things written in the century before that, and one some, somewhere before that whenever the doxology would come in there. And what that does is this. It removes from us the arrogance of our age, of saying it's only the the most contemporary things that we should sing because that's what we like. Well, there's nothing wrong with liking contemporary But we must acknowledge that it's way bigger than us and that God has gifted his church down through the centuries. Remember our choral uh, uh, worship response from generation to generation? We see that over and over again in the scripture. And that's one of the beauties of our church. If you look around, we've got the generations not a generation, we would be stealing from ourselves if we were all from the same generation because we are to contribute by teaching those younger than us and learning and being challenged by those younger than us like we were in Sunday school with some of our youth challenging us in mission. That's the beauty of a church that has a a vast a group of ages like ours. In terms of outreach, soli deo gloria. 
We had the play and the Palmetto Artist Series. Now, some churches, and I'm not judging other churches here, but some would only do a play if it specifically had a gospel message or if the preacher got up at the end and gave a little gospel message or, or something like that. Or if it was written by a Christian author. Now, there are some things that in the context of worship may not be appropriate. But we would be careful not to make a sharp distinction outside of our worship service itself between the sacred and the secular. When we do those plays and and present great music in our Palmetto Artist series, whether it is from a Christian or uh, one who is not a Christian and yet presents excellent music, we present it SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. And it's appropriate, and it reminds us that all of life is to be worship before him. Also in other decisions, even as we talk about the possibility of, of needing to add something onto our building uh, in terms of space and so on, the, the decision should be made not whether we can have a bigger building, not whether it would make St. Andrew's look better, but whether for God's glory this is what we ought to do. Let's take it away from the larger church and go to the family. Let me just give you one example there in terms of a man-centered way that we see often in our world. Let's say you have a, a son or daughter that wants to date. And so one view is I will find one or approve of my child dating someone as long as they're decent and they treat them with respect. Now that's important. Nobody can argue with that. But it is man-centered. There's nothing wrong with those qualities. You want them to be decent. You want them to treat your son or daughter with respect. But a soli deo gloria family will always begin with God's standards. A soli deo gloria relationship must begin in that way. The first question, not the not the tenth question that you should ask your child is do they know the Lord? That's the first question. Are they trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their eternal life? Because you know, the Bible says that we shouldn't be unequally yoked. And so a Christian and a non-Christian, they can't get married. They can but not doing so in God's way. And then after that first question, there needs to, you need to, to press and say, okay, oh, yeah, of course they know the Lord. You know, we're in the South, aren't we? They know the Lord. Do they go to church? Are they a member of a church? Are they active in the church? And press and press in those things. And if a girl or a guy doesn't know the answer to that, then they aren't ready to date that person. 
Now, some of you, I know. Some of you are thinking, wow, that's harsh. I'd hate to be his child. Is it harsh to do what God says? Or is it loving? I contend because I know God wants what's best for me and for my children, that that is never harsh to do what God says. And there are plenty of people in this church who will tell you of the heartbreak of being unequally yoked. It's not that you can't love somebody. But what it means is that that thing which should be the most intimate thing that a husband and wife share, and that is your faith. They can't share it. And that's hard. Another area is finances. This may say as much as anything about whether you're living a man-centered or God-centered life. And what are you investing? What does your checkbook and credit card say? Would you unashamedly present them to God as being his? When I was a pastor in Pennsylvania, it was a, a, a small town, and one of the churches, not the church I pastored, but one of the churches every year published what everyone gave to the church, and they put them in order. The most to the least. We're thinking about doing that here. Um, (laughs) We would never do that. Rest assured. But let me ask you this. Would you be embarrassed if we did? Because here's the thing. If you'd be embarrassed in front of me or others, that's not really your big problem. Your bigger problem is God already knows what you give. He's given us biblical ways of giving. And and many of you know what those are. And some of you, even though you know them, don't consider giving on that level. Or you may never consider giving to global missions. Even though you see that we are to partner with those who are carrying out that long-distance part of the Great Commission. Here's the thing. You'd be embarrassed by that. It would be hard to say that you are living solely Deo Gloria. Now, maybe some of these have hit you. I've just given you a few examples, and you're probably glad the examples are over with. We need to look at every area of our life. And you know what, if I went on long enough, if none of those examples hit you, if I went on long enough, they would. We would all see areas where we are not living solely Deo Gloria. Let me say one more thing about Johann Sebastian Bach. I told you how he signed his compositions, S-D-G. On many of his works, he put at the top J.J., Yesu Yuva, which means Jesus' help. There are areas where 
I am not and you are not living solely Deo Gloria. Our only hope is Jesu Yuva. There are going to be areas we slip into man-centeredness if we don't watch it. But if you are a believer in Christ, if you're trusting in him alone for your salvation, you will only find satisfaction in living soli Deo Gloria. May we begin each day with JJ, Yesu, Yuva, and end it with SDG, soli Deo Gloria, for God's glory alone, both in our church and in our personal lives. Let's bow together.